Hudson and Ish copyrighted podcast and website represent the opinions of Dr. Lakeisha Hudson, Dr. Kiki, Peace and Synergy Incorporated, and or her guests. The content here should not be taken as medical, psychological, or any other advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical, mental, or health concerns. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are Dr. Hudson's and or her guests and do not represent that of their places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of utmost importance to us. All people and places mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality. This podcast or website should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of the podcast or blogs, please send an email to 423.4.dr.kiki at gmail.com. everyone. This is Dr. Kiki, and today we will be talking about COVID-19. We have a wonderful panel here today, and I'm going to go ahead and introduce them. We have Dr. Alice Hyun Kyung Tan, and she is an internist at Ms. Medi uh, Women's Hospital in Seoul, Korea. So good morning to you. <laughs> uh, we have Dr. Winston McIver, and he is a physician at Waccamaw Primary Care in Conway, South Carolina. He's practicing, uh, he's a practicing physician for close to 25 years and he has training in public health, primary care and sports medicine. So good afternoon to you, Dr. McIver. Hello. Hi, and then we also have Ms. Andrea Gear Cave and she's a registered nurse working in Utah and she's currently pursuing her master's in nursing education. So good afternoon to you as well, Ms. Gear Cave. All right, so let's just kind of jump right into these questions. And the first thing um, that we want to do is just kind of give an overview of exactly what is COVID-19. Um, you know, the media, we've heard all kinds of things. We've heard all kinds of things from our aunts and our uncles about what it is. But um, what, what exactly is COVID-19? And uh, Dr. Tan, we'll, we'll start with you. So COVID-19, the term is short for Coronavirus Disease 2019, and it's a respiratory disease, so it primarily affects the lungs, that's caused by the virus that's called SARS-CoV-2 virus. So COVID-19 is the name of the disease, and SARS-CoV-2 virus is the name of the virus that causes the disease. This virus is completely new to humans. In other words, we've never had infected by this virus before. And it's what we call a zoonotic infection. In other words, the virus usually lives in animals, but somehow it jumped from animals to humans. And that's when it caused the disease and problems. And it was first detected in China. The common symptoms are fever, cough, fatigue, and if it gets very severe, it can cause kind of a, a stiffening of the lungs, the, the air pockets uh, in the lungs where we exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide. They kind of get lined with this um, uh, stiff coating. And so the lungs stop, to stop functioning. That's the primary uh, you know, pathological process. In other words, that's primarily what goes wrong when the disease gets very sick. 
fear. Um, however, on the flip side, about 80% of people who get infected with this disease, um, they're fine. You know, their symptoms are just like a cold or flu. Uh, and then within about, you know, either three to 14 days, some people, they get over it really quickly. Some people, it takes longer. They'll be just fine uh, after they have their, um, you know, very mild symptoms. So it's a brand new disease. It kind of looks like other respiratory illnesses, but it has its own characteristics. Um, and uh, most people will be okay, but it has caused a significant number of deaths as well. Okay. And speaking about um, the number of deaths and people getting sick, um, Dr. McIver, what are the statistics looking like in, in your area in South Carolina? Well, specifically in South Carolina, um, we are, I gave a talk, uh, community talk this past Sunday, six days ago. Mm -hmm. At that time, um, there was 19 cases in South Carolina. In the last six days, we've jumped from 19 cases to 125 cases. Mm -hmm. Now, a big part of that, I believe, too, is that we're now getting more tests in South Carolina, so more people are being tested. We're staying around the national averages roughly of about uh, 9 to 12% of people that are being tested are positive. Okay. Um, we've been consistently with that. Right now in the state, uh, as of um, about an hour ago, we tested 1,255 people, and 125 ha have been um, positive. Okay. Uh, there's been only one reported death in, in South Carolina thus far, um, but the numbers are growing as the tests are being done. In South Carolina, I'm sure in the United States overall on Sunday, six days ago, there was about 2,600 cases, and now there's over uh, 16,000 cases in the United States. Okay, all right. So and the numbers are growing, um, all 50 states. Um, our neighboring states, North Carolina and Georgia, are having a significant number of cases as well. We're up to about um, 16 counties in South Carolina that are affected. Okay. All right. And Dr. Tan, um, I know that you've done a lot of work uh, in this area. What are the statistics looking like in, in uh, Corita? So in terms of the total number of uh, people who've received testing in South Korea so far, we've had, and this is um, since January 20th and up to March 20th, so over the last uh, two months, um, we've tested 301,139 cases, actually a little bit more than that because um, some tests are pending. And of those cases, we've had 8,652 positive. And so our statistic is a little bit different. We've had a 2.7% positive yield. In other words, of the you know, little over 300,000 people that we've tested, the 8,652 represent 2.7% you know, of that population. Um, we've, so far, we've had uh, 2,233 people who've been cured. Uh, and released from quarantine. Uh, we've had 94 deaths. 
and they, uh, with the exception of two, they've all been in people over the age of 50. Okay. Um, and uh, in terms of cities, the, it, we had a huge outbreak in a city called Tegu. Um, it, the population of the city is about 1.2 million, and um, we've had over 6,000 cases in that city. The largest city in, in Korea is Seoul. That's our capital city. We have about 12 million people there. And um, as of uh, midnight uh, this morning, so midnight of uh, March 20th, um, Seoul had 299 cases. So um, in terms of what's going on in Korea, uh, basically the vast, vast majority of our cases were in the city of Daegu. We've had, of course, clusters of cases uh, throughout Korea as well. Um, some provinces and cities have been relatively spared. The problem that we're seeing now is kind of a second wave of cases um, arising in Seoul. Uh, a week ago, Seoul was under um, 100 cases. And the number of new cases um, was, was actually under 10. Um, but now we're seeing uh, close to 20 new cases a day in Seoul. And uh, the statistics over the last week, we've tripled the number of cases. So, uh, I'm very concerned about what's going on in Seoul, um, and uh, we're hope we're you know it, it might be a second wave um, that that's that's coming on the horizon, but we're we're being very vigilant. Okay. All right. And in talking about being vigilant and being proactive about this, Ms. Geertave, what are what are some things that we can do, like common everyday things that we can do? to kind of um, protect ourselves and protect, you know, our loved ones and people around us? Common things are common sense things. Um, what we should be doing is flu season. So we were washing our, we should be washing our hands. Um, social distancing, um, especially if we're sick, we're sick and we have symptoms like runny noses, coughs, we should be covering, covering our cough and our arms and not letting it out. Um, to the people, washing our hands, keeping our hands out of our face, out of our mouth, out of our nose, just common sense things. And the biggest thing right now is, besides that, is staying away from people. That's the biggest thing that's going to help. I mean, we still keep congregating. It's not, we're not going to be able to break it. Very true. Very true. Um, Dr. Tan, do you think that that may be um, a contributing factor in this kind of second wave that you're seeing? Sorry, can you sure. catch the line? Like the, the second wave or that the increase that you're seeing, do you think part of it might be that people are maybe prematurely congregating again or getting together or? Absolutely, so there are two things contributing. Uh, first of all, our country, um, even though we've, um, you know, closed schools and, uh, you know, a lot of people are working from home. We're not in a formal lockdown. Uh, and so places are still open for business. Um, the big cluster that we saw in Seoul was actually at a health 
phone call center. So it's one of those places where you call for customer service or, you know, customer support. And we've um, seen, you know, close to, I think a little over a hundred positive cases from that one place of work alone so far. And I think the numbers are going to grow. And so um, as people continue to, you know, come together for work or to, for social reasons. Yes, absolutely. That can be a cause for spread. Um, but other reason is uh, the characteristic of the illness and the virus itself. Um, in the early stage, some people don't even know they're sick. They don't have symptoms and yet they can spread the illness. So when we check, you know, the, the nasal swabs for the virus, we have found, especially in younger uh, patients, we have found very high viral loads. In other words, people can be shedding the virus, but they feel relatively well. In other words, they have absolutely no symptoms or very mild symptoms. They think they're fine. And so they're out in the community, they're meeting their friends, they're going to work, they're visiting their grandmother in a nursing home, I mean, they're doing, they're moving around, they're staying active, they're getting out of their house. And that's definitely what's contributing to spread. Mm-hmm. So it's those two things. The fact that we're not in absolute lockdown and so people are still congregating. And then two, the fact that asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic people with mild symptoms can spread the disease. Uh, I think those are the two major factors in why we might be going into this second wave. Okay. And um, Dr. McIver, Dr. Tan um, hit on some of the the misconceptions that people have, like, you know, I feel well, so I'm going to go out, you know, because I'm fine. Um, What are some other misconceptions um, that you have heard um, from the community? I know one that I keep hearing is, you know, it's just like um, the flu. That's what I know. No, no it's, it's, it's unlike the flu because, you know, with this virus, as Dr. Tan said earlier, it's a totally new virus. So no one has immunity to this, even partial immunity to this. And the concern is, is that, you know, once you see it, like she said, there's a number of pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic people that are still out and about that are passing these things on. You know, a couple things that we, you know, have been talking about a lot is um, called flattening the curve, flattening the curve. When I've, I've been on three radio shows this week, and the common question is, well, Doc, what, what do they mean when they say flattening the curve? Well, in other words, what it means is as the incidence of the, of the cases happen, the, it, it goes up, like going up a mountain. So our job of flattening the curve is to reduce the incidence, which is the frequency of disease, and reduce the prevalence, which is the commonness of the disease, so that we can reduce the overall total cases. Mm. Um, Typically, in flattening the curve, you have to understand there are three phases of this. There's one called the containment phase, and that's the steps to prevent this from spreading as, as fast, you know, as long as you can. The next is a delayed phase, where you try to prevent the ascension of the cases and right now, we're really in the mitigation phase, you know, trying to do overall uh, reduction in the, imp- in the community to reduce the impact. Um, a common thing is, is, you know, a good prevention plan is social distancing. And with that, 
you know, well, let me give you this fact. A single cough can produce up to 3,000 droplets. A single sneeze can produce up to 100,000 droplets. A sneeze can travel as fast as 100 miles per hour. And a sneeze or a cough can have particles go anywhere between six to eight feet, up to six to eight feet. So it's important to understand that and, and, and understand the importance of social distancing so that way you're not really in large crowds. I mean, we're seeing these young people who are on you know, springtime now, hanging out on the beaches in Florida and South Carolina, which is totally unacceptable. Uh, the, governors, the governor in, in, in Florida at least has stepped in to stop that. Um, but it needs to be more widespread um, enforcement of social distancing. Because again, that's the way to flatten this out. The, the way to think about it is what we're doing today will affect us a week to two weeks from now. Right. The numbers that we're seeing now were things because of things that we didn't do 10 days to two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it's very important because in, in the United States, I just don't think that we quite get it. Some of that's a political reason that I really don't want to get into unless you want to get into it. But we've, 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 tested, we've tested totally too late. The World Health Organization said this was a problem two months ago, two months ago. So we are well behind where we should be with testing. We're well behind where we should be with identifying. And we're well behind with the message that should have been given two months ago about the severity of this. When the World Health Organization deemed that this was a pandemic and that it was gonna be worldwide implications likely with this uh, COVID-19. Right. Um, and I think you both have hit on a very important point earlier when you were talking about the fact that um, people are asymptomatic and they're around a bunch of people one misconception that I know I've heard is, you know, well, they're saying that the very young, you know, they can't really get it. And it's not that they can't get it. They don't get as sick as the elderly. But that still doesn't mean that they cannot get as sick as the elderly, is my right. understanding. Like, they can still right. get very sick. Right. right. Well, in the, United, in the United States, that's one of the fastest growing populations are the, are the young. And it's affecting men for some reason almost twice as much as women. We don't know why, but that's a fact that's being a uh, statistic that's being kind of sorted out in the, um, in the studies of this. But, you know, the, the, the issue is now is that a lot of um, university centers, systems are now starting to get somewhat of a, of a, of a paradigm of how this is going to be treated. And once the person is positive. You know, typically if a person is positive and they have milder symptoms, which are, you know, subjective fever, dry cough, some fatigue, nasal congestion, headaches, sore throat, they're being quarantined at home for typically 14 days. They're needing encouraging supportive care, which is fluids, rest. Um, there's some talk about anti-inflammatories like uh, uh, Motrin or um, Aleve that still would be sorted out as to whether or not those need to be given. So the safer thing would be Tylenol for fevers. Um, and that's for the milder cases. For the more moderate cases, they're having higher temperatures, shortness of breath. Those people are usually hospitalized with oxygen, uh, airborne isolation, uh, management support, and treating other comorbidities. Sometimes those, most of those people are developing pneumonia, 
but some of them are developing sepsis, which is an infection in the blood. So antibiotics, medicines for the flu, if they've tested uh, positive for the flu, and if they've got asthma, treating with bronchodilators to help open up the lungs. The most severe people are needing those things, plus usually ventilator support, where they're on a respirator, uh, life support machine to help keep them because their shortness of breath is usually severe, their oxygen levels usually drop to dangerous levels, and they're usually significantly dehydrated. Okay. And, you know, I think about how, you know, they say the elderly and the people with um, compromised immune systems, um, but you don't always know if you have a compromised immune system. So I'm thinking for me, I would hate for that to be the way that I find out. So if for no other reason, um, it's really important that we follow these guidelines and again, to protect the people around us. Um, you know, I might feel fine, but I'm able to transmit this virus to someone else. And, and that's not cool. In South Korea, it's also, um, it's, it's similar in terms of the age group between 20 and 29 years that demographic is making up 30% of all total cases. That is a significant chunk. Um, and so, you know, being young does not confer immunity. However, um, you know, I mean, if we just look at another statistic, the, the children and adolescents, they do seem to be relatively spared, spared in terms of getting the disease, and spared in terms of the severity of the disease once they get it. But um, the caveat is, you know, there are, you know, there's severe cases in children too. I mean, there have been children who required intubation um, yes. you know, and respiratory support. And so um, I completely agree with Dr. MacGyver. This is not like the flu. I mean, for people who have mild symptoms, those are the kinds of symptoms that they will have, what we call flu-like symptoms. But in terms of looking at the disease overall, you know, this is its own animal. <laughs> this is completely new and is, it's got its own characteristics that we need to be well aware of in order to develop you know, uh, guidelines for not just individuals, but also communities and countries. some questions from from the field. <laughs> um, I did um, ask if there were some questions that people had. So we're just going to do like a, a quick question and answer segment. Um, one person asked, how is it transmitted? And I think that we've kind of covered that, but if you wanted to do a couple of bullet points about how it's transmitted. So in terms of transmission, um, it is an acute respiratory illness, and as Dr. McIver said, sneezing and coughing, those are the ways that it can be transmitted, so respiratory droplets. Uh, however, um, we've seen reports uh, published recently that show that the virus can also be transmitted through uh, surfaces, so contact surfaces. We call this fomites, that's the medical term. So if a person coughs or sneezes onto a table or a computer keyboard, the virus can stay, uh, uh, we say viable, so the virus can stay alive 
on stainless steel and plastic surfaces for up to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And also they found that the virus can stay alive uh, in the air as well. Um, and so in terms of you know, what's driving the spread of this illness, I think the major you know, cause of the drive of the spread of the infection is through respiratory droplets. But we do need to keep in mind that there are other indirect ways of transmission that have been published that we know about now that perhaps we didn't months ago. Also, um, uh, you know, the virus, in terms of when they check for it, has also been found in stool specimens. And so that's something that we need to consider um, in terms of you know, how, how careful we need to be. We don't think that this is a major driver of transmission, in other words, fecal, oral, or you know, fecal to different mucosal surfaces. That kind of transmission is probably not the main way this is being spread, but it's also something that we keep in mind given the data that's been published more recently. Okay. Um, so the next question is, um, if, if you get sick at home, and you're not confirmed, what medicine should you be taking? And I'm gonna direct this one to Dr. McIver, because um, I think in the States, like with the number of people being tested, um, if, if they haven't been confirmed, but they're feeling like this, and you kind of hit on this before, but what should they be taking? Well, it's more, if they haven't been uh, confirmed, the main thing is to do is just to really just kind of quarantine yourself and do symptomatic treatment, making sure supportive care, eating well, um, uh, eating well-balanced meal, getting plenty of fluids, any Tylenol for any aches or pains, um, and basically just kind of isolating yourself because there is no treatment per se for this. Okay. All right. And um, someone else asked, how is it distinguishable from the flu? Well, typically with the flu, um, there, are a lot, there are a lot of similar symptoms with this and the flu, but typically there's more uh, lower respiratory symptoms, more shortness of breath. So it's more things like that, but still some symptoms similar to the flu. But these people are typically sicker in a lot of cases, and particularly the ones that need to be hospitalized, they have a significant shortness of breath. Okay. Significant. All right. In most cases. I if, if I could just add something. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in Korea, we had our huge wave uh, sooner <laughs> than um, the United States, Italy, Iran, other places. And that was uh, a big question. You know, how can I, as a normal, you know, everyday person, distinguish my, because it, it was flu season. Um, you know, it was January, it was cold, it was flu and flu season when this hit our country. How can I distinguish my cough and cold symptoms, you know, from the flu versus the cold versus COVID-19? And at the very beginning, um, we used travel history, you know, to, to sort of distinguish, you know, is this probably the flu versus is this probably COVID-19? However, of course, the world has changed now. We are in a pandemic. 
And so what I'm telling um, my community is at this point um, as in, Seoul, in, in Korea, it's safer just to get tested. Um, you know, don't, uh, don't try to self-diagnose at home. You know, don't use travel history uh, because there's local transmission going on. Um, and so, it, you know, every con community, they have their own guidelines. But in South Korea, um, it's just wiser. The tests are widely available and there is local transmission. And um, it, it, sometimes fatalities occur very quickly. Uh, in terms of symptom onset to the day they die, it could happen within one week. And so what I'm telling um, uh, my community is if you are older or if you have comorbidities, if you're a high-risk person, just get tested first um, because the, the capabilities are there. And um, uh, it, it's, it's better to know uh, what's going on rather than just sitting at home and, and wondering. Um, Sorry. I want to add to that. I want to add to that as well. At our local hospital on on um, Monday, there was only eighty tests, eight zero tests in the whole hospital. So it's just it, that the patients are calling the hospital, and the hospital are telling them to call the primary care doctor's office, but the primary care doctors don't have the test. So it is. It has been. It has been a nightmare to say the least and you know one thing that really um hadn't been talked about a whole lot in the media is the long-term effects possibly mm -hmm. from COVID-19 mm -hmm. with the fact that a lot of people may end up with chronic lung conditions and less lung function than they had before if they had have asthma emphysema COPD chronic bronchitis sometimes possibly lowering their overall immune system, making them more susceptible to other conditions. Um, you know, worsening the diabetes, worsening, you know, other conditions that patients may have. So that's another part that will kind of sort itself out as time goes by, is what's the long-term sequelae of having COVID-19. Okay. Another thing I was thinking about um, was, so I've been watching the testing here in Utah, and so when you send out a test, the, you, the state has to approve the criteria for the test. So right. just because we send a test, if they don't meet a certain criteria, even though we suspect it, they still don't run the test. Oh. Right, right. right. So they, they have to meet a certain criteria. Now, the, in South Carolina, the medical board just okayed, the Department of, South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, just okayed for physicians to apply to get these tests. What kind of, that, that just happened just uh, yesterday. But again, there's still gonna be a turnaround time, there's gonna be a lag to that, even when the hospitals aren't getting adequate tests. It just seems like a big gap to me that when we send the test up, because we suspect there's a, that, it's, that they're positive, they still don't get tested. So you still have to quarantine right. them anyway. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, wow. exactly. And then another thing I was thinking, I've been thinking about a lot is everyone <laughs> keep poo-pooing and saying it's just like the flu or it's just older people or it's just people who are unhealthy. Well, look at the demographic of our country. Every, mostly everybody walking around here got some kind of 
comorbidity that would put them on a list of being high at a higher risk, especially in the medical community, just the nurses and doctors alone with blood pressure and things. So it's, it's more of a danger to our population in, uh, in general than we want to believe it is, I feel. Right. Well, I, I've been doing a lot of outreach here in the area, trying to encourage these churches to suspend church services, go remotely with them. Face, I know my church is doing Facebook Live, YouTube Live, as a lot of other churches are, just to try to cut down and try to promote this social, uh, social distancing. The other thing I do want to mention, too, and this is something that we're kind of pushing as far as a prevention, is strict hand washing. At least 30 seconds with soap and water. Keeping your hands away from your face, mouth, and nose. If you're going to use hand sanitizer, you want to have at least 60% alcohol in it. Eating well-balanced meals, taking your medicines as prescribed, particularly if you have diabetes, asthma, or any other kind of chronic condition, and getting proper rest and reducing your stress. Those are key things. What, what do you think um, is the biggest challenge or the biggest barrier to us being able to to do the social distancing. Like I think about the fact, um, you know, they talk about the six degrees of separation and we mm -hmm. all come in contact with someone that could be at high risk if it's not ourselves. So knowing that, I know that like around my father, like I made sure, you know, he had all of his vitamins, and he had food in the house and he had tissue paper because that's really important. Um, mm -hmm. and all those things. So I'm just wondering why, when we're thinking about our health and when we're thinking about you know, putting people at risk, what do you think the biggest challenge is um, for being able to do the social distancing? Oh. Um, a little bit as in our nation, we're just a little bit disillusioned to people telling us what to do. That's, that's what I gather from <laughs> what I see, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I think um, there are two things going on. First of all, uh, it, we saw the same thing, you know, in Korea. Um, there's this misconception that this disease is somebody else's problem. You know, at the beginning, uh, you know, it's only China. We're safe. It, it, that happened in Korea too. I mean, there was sort of people were lulled that we weren't going to have a Wuhan kind of situation in our country. Mm. Um, but this virus is very deceptive. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it crosses borders very, very easily. And so it's this um, complacency, you know, and, and I don't blame people because it's a completely new disease, right? Uh, we, we don't know what to expect. And a lot of mixed signals were given, I think, in the medical community, just because we didn't know, we did not have the information. Um, but that, that's one problem is just uh, complacency or just um, thinking that it's not gonna happen to you or in your community. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is um, uh, just, uh, I, I think discipline, you know, it, it takes discipline to uh, follow these, very strict, they may seem draconian, may seem very restrictive, social distancing requirements. Um, 
but uh, you know, as a lot of people are saying, it's not that hard, really, <laughs> to stay at home. It, it really isn't, you know, uh, just, you know, make sure you have, you know, your supplies, your essentials, you know, medications, for example, um, and staying at home, you know, we're not asking you to go outside and put your life in danger in a war. We're just asking you to stay still for a bit, you know, stay at home, to stay away from people. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the length of this, right now we're thinking, you know, at least two weeks, it may be a little bit longer that we need to do this to, to, to quell the fire. Uh, but uh, it, it does take discipline. Um, and it takes a sense of social responsibility that, you know, my individual actions can affect not just my family, but really the whole state or the whole country because this can be transmitted so easily. So it's, you know, the sort of my civic responsibility to just distance myself just, just kind of stay away from work, stay away from gatherings. And it's that realization, but also the discipline to carry that out. I think those are the two big things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because a sneeze is powerful. Good gracious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Has the virus shown any reaction to weather temperatures? Does it thrive more in warm weathers versus uh, cold weather? Well, that was, that was one thought uh, that, you know, Typically in viruses, it's usually cold weather type things. But, you know, we just, they just finished summer in Australia, and they've had hundreds of cases yeah. and deaths. So I wish that, that still has to be sorted out, but it doesn't seem to be just a, um, just a winter type thing. Okay. They're warm now. In, in the Caribbean, they have a number of cases as well. And so, you know, it doesn't seem to be related to that. Um, how, how much weather plays a part in it, we really don't know just yet. I think statistics will sort that out. But right now, it is happening in places that are warmer climates. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, this question was asked more than once, so I'm going to ask it. Um, is it safe to eat takeout? So, uh, I mean, the short answer is, as a doctor, as a responsible healthcare worker, we can't say because no one's done the test, you know, on takeout food to give you a reliable, medically proven answer. The thing that I will say is, you know, what has been echoed before, hand washing, okay? So, if you wash your hands before you get the takeout food, you bring it home, you wash your hands again, you take it out of the container, you wash your hands again, and you, you know, you heat it nice and hot. You eat it, you wash your hands before you eat, you wash your hands afterwards. Probably it will be safe. But has anyone done an experiment to prove and, you know, say 100% yes, it's safe? No. Okay, but we all have to eat, right? So that's why we're saying take these common sense precautions and you should be okay. The other thing, the flip side is, you know, we don't have any reports of a big outbreak due to takeout food, right? So yeah. taking these common sense precautions, I think um, 
will be uh, helpful. And also, as mentioned before, so uh, the virus has been shown to be viable on stainless steel and plastic. It, it does not survive on cardboard. That has been uh, scientifically proven. So um, that's perhaps just another little bit to keep in mind. Okay. Copper okay. also does survive on cardboard. Right. <laughs> Um, if, yeah. you get, if you get the COVID-19 once, can you get it again? Well, that's a very good question, you know, to, and, and there's different answers that have come about that. The kind of general thought, at least in the United States right now, is that if you get it, then you probably have some degree of, of immunity for anywhere between one to three years. Now, is that true in this case? We really don't know. Um, I did read one, one case scenario where it was thought that a person did get re reinfected. Now, is that true? I don't know. Could it have been an extension of the same infection? I don't know. But the thought is, and I don't know, that'd be a good question to see what, with Dr. Tan, what's being said over, over there um, in, um, in Korea. But the thought is right now, at least amongst some of the, you know, a lot of the folks here, is that you do have some, would probably have some degree of immunity for anywhere between one to three years, most likely, but that's not known fully. Hey, Dr. Tan? Right. Yeah, in South Korea, so we've had just a, a handful, less than five cases of patients who uh, have had COVID 19. Um, they were in quarantine isolation for 14 days. They received the, the testing, the PCR testing, found to be negative, discharged, went home. And then after a few days, they developed the symptoms again, were tested, and then were found to be PCR positive. But um, the thought here is that most likely um, they had fluctuating levels of shedding of the virus. And so at day 14, they were at a level where the virus just wasn't detectable. But um, then as days passed, it, you know, it, it came back. So it was an extension of the same infection with fluctuating levels of, you know, viremia or not viremia, but um, viral load uh, in the samples. And so um, that's what we think is happening. Um, just another thought is also, uh, we're, you know, we're looking for antibodies um, to COVID-19 patients who have been cured and we've been able to isolate this antibody. And we found that this antibody, um, when tested against uh, the virus, you know, they, they specifically will target the virus and they're effective in killing the virus. And so we, you know, based on these little bits of scientific data, we do think that once you're infected, your body will have made the antibodies to give you immunity to the virus if it were to come, you know, if you were to get inoculated again. Okay. All right. And one last question here. Um, what about some of the reports from Chinese medicine doctors that had successful that were successful with Chinese herbs and homeopaths that have had success um, with homeopathic remedies and uh, past pandemics around the world? So in terms of treatment, I mean, I understand 
everyone is just so desperate to hear news of you know what's going to treat the virus um from what i've read and i i think these uh maybe perhaps homeopathic and uh, traditional chinese medicine trials um uh, they they first of all they they might have had some effect but we need to remember that 80 percent of patients will get better on their own anyway you, so it, it's hard to say, you know, if, was it really an effect of the medicine? Um, on the other hand, you know, there are known Western medicines, you know, medicines that we take every day that have roots in, you know, plant-based chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so we can't really rule it out. Um, what I will say, and I, I think this is something important, is that there was a study released, um, I think within the last 24 hours, out of France, where they checked um, the effect of a medicine called hydroxychloroquine. And this is a medicine that's been used to treat malaria. Um, sometimes it's used in uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Right. And um, this was found to decrease the amount of virus setting. Um, from the nose and the throat. So nasal pharyngeal swabs um, had a virological cure after the, um, used this medicine. However, the caveat is, of course, this was a very, very small trial. Right. Only 28 received this medication in the trial. Right. And so you know, how expandable is this conclusion? to you know, the rest of the world, the millions of people who will get this. Um, it's, it's very hard to say. I, I can only say it's a glimmer of hope. Um, and and you know, tests using hydroxychloroquine and also chloroquine in China, in Korea, they have shown some you know, hints of positive results, but um, you know, everyone's holding their breath, but it, the, the research going on and, and every day, you know, people are, are trying to find you know, what are the medicines that work and don't work. Uh, recently, I think it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was a report showing that um, a medicine called Calitra, it does not seem to work. That was one of the right. medicines that we had hoped for, but right. um, the trial showed that it did not work. And that's also important to know too. You know what works, but also what does not work. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we will see. I, I think we need to wait for good uh, scientific data before we can make, um, you know, firm conclusions. Um, I understand everyone's desperation. Uh, I mean, the, Italy. I, I mean, the people of Italy. They must be, just, you know, crying every day for, you know, what is right. the cure. Um, but still, we need to be very careful about what we suggest at this time um, right. as, as a possible cure. Um, and, right. and that's really all that we can do for now. Um, right. We can continue our testing and be, you know, continue to be very methodical because we, we, you know, we don't want to suggest, you know, that something works and then later find out that actually it doesn't or that it actually causes more harm. And, and exactly. so that's why be careful. Exactly. And I agree with you, Dr. Tan, being, you know, cautiously optimistic about some of these um, therapies that, 
you know, may have some, some, some proof, some um, effectiveness, but still need a lot more studies, a lot more information to say that it is uh, going to do what it's supposed to do or do what we hope it would do. Yes. Yes. Great. So um, any parting words uh, about this coronavirus and fighting it and, and what's going on? We'll start with uh, you, Ms. Gearkay. Um, I just, it's a lot of collateral stuff that happens with this disease. People don't seem to realize, like, people are in the hospitals all alone by themselves because they can't have visitors and watching people suffer without family has been kind of difficult. Um, that's a big collateral thing that people aren't thinking about. And I just wish that everyone would um, comply so that we don't have to tell people they can't see their family members and things like that. I just wish we could all as a society just think about others and think about, especially if it could happen to you or your family and what that would feel like, because that's been kind of rough for the medical staff to have to hold hands of people or comfort people or argue with people or fight with people because they can't come in and see their family members when they're going through this and other things because the other illnesses and reasons for hospitalizations hasn't stopped. So we are being really overtaxed right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tan? Um, so the, the important parting message that I want to communicate is that this is not a doomsday scenario. You know, the world will not collapse, even though it may feel like it. Um, Korea, you know, we went through the fire before the United States, before a lot of other places. We were the second biggest hit country after China. Um, and at its height, you know, we were getting 900, you know, new cases confirmed in our country overnight. And it just felt like, we were suffocating. I mean, that was the feeling just as a normal person that I, you know, I admit that even as a medical professional, I have, but, you know, look at the flip side, um, you know, 15% case fatality in people over 80. What does that mean? 85% of people over 80 who get COVID-19 recover. That's, that's actually a lot, you know, 85% recover. 80% um, of everyone who gets sick will actually have a mild or moderate case and, and they okay. So um, it's not a doomsday scenario. It's going to be a long, long fight, not weeks, many, many, many months, okay? So this is kind of a new normal that we better get used to. And, and, you know, uh, be able to, as I said, have the self-discipline to just comply with what needs to be, you know, what needs to be done. Um, but is there hope? Most definitely. Hey, SARS, the, the mortality rate for SARS was a lot higher. And yet we got over SARS. H1N1, it took 16 months, but eventually, you know, it, it calmed down. So, um, in, you know, we've, we've had pandemic scenarios before. The world has been able to get over it. We will be able to get over it as well. So stay hopeful. Um, but just, you know, if you follow uh, the advice of the healthcare and professionals who are, you know, the senior 
be the, the, the leaders who are in healthcare, not necessarily the political leaders. The leaders who are in healthcare, they know what they're doing. You know, trust them and please follow their advice. It will be okay. Yes. Um, as far as my parting words, you know, the United States, we're just really getting into the fire. Mm -hmm. um, my, my sincere hope is that people start to take this seriously. I think the government has a different tone now and they're taking it seriously. Um, we're getting more tests out so people can get tested. We still have a limited number. And in the meantime, social distancing needs to be the key. Going out, you know, just hanging out, hanging out on the beach, hanging out in large crowds and things like that, that really does not need to be the, 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 the norm. Uh, the weather's getting nice here. It's beautiful outside right now, just coming off of a, a pretty, um, pretty tough winter, you know, around here. And I just want people to understand that this is serious. It's not necessarily a death sentencing. The vast, vast majority of people will recover and do well, but there will be a significant number of people unnecessarily that will um, have some major issues because of the, you know, insensitivity and the, the, the lack of following instructions that the medical community is given. So I encourage people strongly to do that so we can reduce the incidence and prevalence of COVID-19, so we can flatten this curve, so we can get people better. Wonderful. I want to thank you all for taking the time to talk about COVID-19 and giving us some great information and um, some information on our way forward to be able to um, combat what's going on. And um, some of it, a lot of it is common sense that we just need to follow um, in order to um, not only help ourselves and our families, but our greater community to take care of each other, which spans, you know, states and countries and it crosses all lines. So it's important that we do do those things in order for us all to be healthy and well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.